Back to Leviticus we go. Leviticus chapter 8, if you would turn there in your Bibles, please. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there should be one in a pew nearby. We're going to be dealing with the entire chapter this morning, so we're not going to read all the way through, but we will go along portion by portion as uh, we unfold this text this morning. Father, this is your word. Open it to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. On Wednesday evening, one Wednesday evening in the fall of 1992, the members of Highland Park Baptist Church in Southfield, Michigan, were invited to witness one of the most nerve-wracking events of my life. That evening, I sat at a table on one side of a platform, and at another table on the other side of the platform sat five of the other men who were on staff with me at that church. And from that table, they would spend the evening questioning me in regard to my knowledge of Scripture and doctrine and practical ministry. It's what they call an ordination exam. I'm not sure I passed with flying colors, but I passed with colors. And so, a couple of months later, on a very snowy January evening, there was a service of ordination, during which many people said many nice things about me. And the pastor of my home church in New Jersey, whom they were kind enough to fly out for that service, preached a sermon directly to me. It's typically called the charge to the ordinand. And it's intended to impress upon the man being ordained the seriousness and the weight of his calling. What we're about to see in Leviticus chapter 8 is an ordination. It's a different ordination than the one I experienced. One difference is that there is no examination. But the primary difference is not the form, but the office. The New Covenant ministry of pastor is very much different than the Old Covenant ministry of the priesthood. Elders and pastors are not mediators. The priest was primarily a mediator. All of us are familiar with the concept of mediation, whether it's in regard to labor and management or some civil matter. A mediator is one who steps in between two aggrieved parties in order to bring about some kind of compromise, which it is hoped will lead to peace. When we look at the priesthood of ancient Israel, as Leviticus opens it up for us, we find that there's a significant difference between the mediation that we normally think about and the mediation of the Levitical priesthood. The chief role of priestly mediation was not to bring together two equally aggrieved persons. 
In the priestly mediation, there is only one offended party. God alone had the right to be offended by the disobedience of his people Israel. God was faithful to his people. They were not loyal to him. The people had no legitimate grievance to bring against God. The mediation of the Levitical priesthood, therefore, was purely one way. And the the priestly mediator was not a dispassionate observer of the dispute because he himself was part of the problem. He too was a sinner who required reconciliation. There had to be a resolution to his own offense against God before he could represent the Israelite individual or the nation before the Lord. Mostly, the priestly mediator did not seek compromise or enter into negotiations so as to nudge God one way or the other. This was not a two-way street. There are no negotiations to be sorted out. The Lord demanded the only means of resolution in this dispute. As we might say today, it's God's way or the highway. Now, there are those who would hear this and think of God as some rather, as, as somewhat stringent in his demands for this kind of strict compliance. Doesn't God bend even a little? But what we need to remember is that the entire order of worship that we have been seeing in our study of Leviticus all of the sacrifices, all of the feasts, all of the Sabbaths, all these things were a provision for the needs of God's people. The worship of Israel was God bending down to the people. In grace, He bent towards sinful men and women and provided for them the means of reconciliation. So that Israel might come to the Lord in worship, something, someone was needed. And the what and the who which was needed was a qualified mediator to represent the people before the Lord. So after providing the authorized sacrifices that we've seen in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, the Lord established an authorized priesthood to carry out those sacrifices properly. Now they didn't always do it properly, as we will shortly see, but that is the in priesthood. So Leviticus chapter 8 describes the inauguration of the priesthood and describes it in terms of an ordination of Aaron, Moses' brother, as the father of this priestly family, the Levites. The Lord prescribed an ordination service that was conducted in the presence of all Israel. 
and the ritual ordination lasted an entire week. Now, when I sat for my ordination council, the church was invited. It was a large church. There were probably a couple of hundred who came to witness this. And it lasted about two hours. So I didn't have quite the same experience that Aaron did. It wasn't a whole nation watching, and it wasn't lasting seven days. But as I said, this is something different. Repeatedly, the text says, as the Lord commanded Moses. And that underscores the divine origin of all of these instructions that we're going to read about this morning. It was God who had called Aaron to this ministry. It was God who is inaugurating the entire priesthood. And it is God who is ordaining Aaron to the ministry of the high priest. The message of the ordination service of the Hebrew priest serves as a picture then of the whole nation as a whole as it was called to minister to the world of nations. It also speaks of the priestly role of the church as the people of God today. Because we don't have a high priest. We don't have any specific priest. We are all priests under the new covenant. Now, most Christians are not ordained, but the depiction of Aaron and his sons is nonetheless important to all of us. Scripture characterizes every one of us as a priest, drawing on that imagery of the old covenant priesthood. Each person among the people of God is gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to minister to the church, and to the world. Israel, as a nation, was collectively appointed by God to function as a kingdom of priests to the nations. Peter uses that same title for us. We are a kingdom of priests. And we are called upon by our God to take His word to the nations, to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. We will also learn here the superior character of the Lord Jesus Christ in His priestly role, because He is the ultimate mediator. He is the one who was foreshadowed by the Old Covenant priests. So let's look through this passage and see what we can take out of it. The first thing we, we're, we're going to see in verses 1 through 9 are the preparations for ordination. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. 
When the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him and girded him with the sash and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it to him. He then placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. He also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban at its front he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, if you were paying attention earlier this morning, you will see that we have included a new statement on the screen this morning, which was placed up during the prelude. And it was a statement which encouraged us to use those few moments prior to the service to prepare ourselves for worship. When God gave His instructions to Israel in regard to proper worship, those instructions always involved appropriate preparation. Preparations that were to be indicative of the spiritual preparations undergone by those who oversaw and participated in the worship of God. Now, Christians today can rest at ease that God Himself, through His Son, has made the way open for us to worship Him. If we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in His righteousness. But still, we too must undergo spiritual preparation for worship. We come before a holy God. How can we do that unless we have first examined ourselves and confessed our sin? and express to Him our need. Only then can we truly come to Him through prayer and praise. Our passage is a reminder that as Christians, we must give attention to our spiritual readiness when we worship the Lord. We'll be celebrating the Lord's table in a few minutes. When the Apostle Paul spoke of this, he spoke of those who received the Lord's table in an unworthy manner and the consequences of that. The Lord wants us to know, if you haven't picked it up already in our study of Leviticus, that He takes His worship very seriously. And we ought to as well. Now, there were a number of issues that came into play for Aaron and his sons as they prepared for worship and prepared for their ministry and now for their ordination. The first thing that stands out is the public nature of this preparation. It was, in fact, a community ceremony. You see that in verse 3 and 4, where all of the congregation is to be assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The ceremony, which would then go on to properly clothe Aaron in his priestly garments, and the following ordination which took place, these were public rituals. 
from which Israel was to learn about God and the role of the priestly mediator. The goal of the ceremony was not to flatter Aaron, but to teach the community about God's holiness. So it is with those who serve Christ today. The spiritual gift that the Lord provides His people is not for the indulgence of the recipient. But Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the gifts are given to the church, that is, God's people are gifted so that within the church they might use those gifts to build one another up. God gives spiritual gifts not for our sake, but so that we can use those gifts for the sake of our brothers and sisters. The second thing we see in regard to preparation, you see this in verse 6, is cleansing. Moses had Aaron and his sons come near, and he washed them with water. Aaron first underwent a ceremonial washing, an indication of moral purity required by the priest. In Levitical law, ceremonial purity was emblematic of personal moral purity. Aaron could not approach the holy God unless he himself was spiritually prepared. And then, of course, there are the priestly garments themselves. There were specific clothes prepared and provided for Aaron, the high priest. We read about this in verses 7 to 9. The dress of the priestly family conveyed important meaning and attracted the respect of the people for what the vestments signified. All priests wore a coat we see in verse 7, made of fine linen. But Aaron's coat possessed a distinctive embroidery. Much of this we read about in the book of Exodus, chapter 28 specifically. Some vestments were worn exclusively by the high priest and not by the other priests. At this point, the high priest is Aaron, the first high priest, and his garments included a number of special items unique to the high priest. Aaron had the advantage of God designing his wardrobe. I often wish I had that advantage. I know nothing about fashion. I get up in the morning, and I get dressed, and I ask her, I don't have older, but before I leave the house in pants as it goes. Designer. First thing we read about is I mentioned opening on the top, so around the decorative pomegranate, and then sewn into read about in a small golden purpose and preserved into that holy place where only he could enter, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies. When he entered and when he came out, the bells assured the people that he had fulfilled his duty and had not been struck dead before the Lord. The high priest also had an embroidered sash made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, that tied the coat at the waist. These colors would have matched the colors of the tabernacle itself, showing the, the, the high, that the high priest belonged to the God who was there in the tent of meeting. 
Another aspect of the high priest's clothing, clothing was the ephod. How many of you are wearing your ephod today? The ephod was a sleeveless garment. We might refer to it refer to it as a vest of some sort. It was made of fine twisted linen. It was woven with gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn, probably worn at the shoulders, extending down to the waist or perhaps down to the thigh. Two gold shoulder pieces for the attachment of the garment possessed two onyx stones, themselves set in gold, each stone engraved with six names of the tribes of Israel. Attached to the ephod at the shoulders by a blue cord looped through golden rings was the breastpiece made of the same colored yarns as the ephod. On the front of the best breastpiece were two, 12 gemstones in four rows of three, each stone engraved with the names of one of the tribes of Israel. Because of the manner in which it was folded, the breastpiece formed a pouch into which was placed another distinctive feature of Aaron's apparel. The pouch of the breastpiece contained what we might call two sacred stones, different from all of the rest, called the Urim and the Thummim. These two stones were very practical. They were used for discerning the will of God. We don't know how they did that. But this is why the, bre the, the breastpiece is sometimes called the breastpiece of judgment. The Bible doesn't give us any specifics upon concerning how the Urim and the Thummim operated, but that much we know. Another garment unique to Aaron was his hat, his headwear. It was a linen turban on which at the forehead was tied a golden plate of pure gold by a blue cord. The plate possessed the engraving holy to the Lord, which meant that whenever Aaron came before the Lord, he was continually mediating on behalf of the people. Exodus 26 says that Aaron was always to wear this upon his forehead, that the people might be accepted before the Lord. All of this was intended to communicate the holiness and the majesty of God. It was a constant reminder of the distinctive role of the priest. By the mediator's vestments, Aaron symbolically brought the people into the presence of God each time he performed the rite of sacrifice. The qualifications of the priestly intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ didn't include a dress code. He was not merely a symbolic gesture of reconciliation. Rather, in his very person, Jesus, as the very image of God, was the perfect conciliator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, the one mediator, between God and man. 
who perfectly performed the eternal sacrifice on behalf of all those who place their faith in him. Our Lord Jesus reigns today in the presence of God his Father. Because Christians are in Christ, the Apostle Paul could speak of our dwelling place as being in the heavenly places. We have been clothed with Christ. Not with all of these priestly garments, which are but the shadow. We have been clothed with the reality of the righteousness of Christ. And this is how we can enter into the very presence of God without being utterly destroyed. Well, in verses 10 through verse 36, we find the ceremony itself. After distinguishing Aaron and his sons as the real, Moses prepares the tabernacle and the priests for administering the first sacrifices. The ordination ceremony involved a symbolic cleansing of the place and the people involved in carrying out the sacrifices. The place was the tabernacle with its furnishings and with the altar where the sacrifices would occur. The persons who underwent this ceremonial consecration were Aaron and his sons, In other words, all of the people, the items, and the places important to administering the sacrifice of worship had to be sanctified, had to be consecrated, had to be cleansed, had to be made holy. Nothing was left to chance. All had to be made holy for the sacrifice to be acceptable to the one holy God of Israel. Otherwise, the offering would be desecrated by the impurities of the procedure. All of this is going to come into play when we move on in Leviticus and find that Aaron's sons sin in this regard. Nadab and Abihu will depart from the instructions of God will start making things up on their own in regard to the worship of God, and they will face the consequences. You see in verses 10 through 13, the consecration of the tabernacle and the priests specifically. Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Next, Moses had Aaron's sons come near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound caps on them just as the Lord had commanded Moses." The Lord had already assigned Moses the task of anointing the place and the priests, and now Moses is carrying out that assignment. The anointing oil was made up of an exclusive formula. It could not be utilized for any other purpose, nor was any other formula to be used in the anointing ritual. It was kind of like the 11 herbs and spices of KFC, except this recipe is not secret. 
and it's God's recipe. The anointing oil followed this divine recipe made up of measured portions of fragrant spices. There was myrrh and cinnamon and cane and cassia. These were mixed in four quarts of olive oil. This mixture was designated then a holy anointing oil, not because of inherently sacred ingredients, but because the oil was uniquely related to the holy worship of God. The term anoint in our passage indicates a smearing of the oil on the surface of the tabernacle and its furniture. The text highlights the altar specifically. The altar was the location where the priests daily made sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. But Aaron and his sons were also anointed with this same oil. And all of this was done in order to consecrate both the place and the people who would be instruments of mediation. To consecrate one but not the other would be of no benefit at all. Both had to be made holy. Both had to be cleansed. This likewise was true of our Lord Jesus who was at the same time the sacrifice and the one who offers the sacrifice. Of course, the significance of the anointing oil was its symbolic association with the Spirit of God. Priests, kings, and prophets received the Spirit, and in many cases they were described as anointed ones. The oil represented the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled the priests to carry out their duties. The priest's presence, the Spirit's presence rather, distinguished these priests from everybody else in the nation. And that same significance is attached to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of every individual Christian and in the Christian church as a whole today. John's first letter tells us that Christians have been anointed by the Holy One as their distinguishing mark. That anointing is a spiritual anointing that comes with the presence of the Spirit in the life of each believer at the moment they come to repentance and faith in Christ, and then that anointing is secured by Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit as we are sealed by the Spirit. And this is not just for some. It's not just for a special class of Christians. Remember, we've already said there are no priests today. We are all the priests of God. Scripture teaches the priesthood of believers. We, Peter says, are a kingdom of priests. And so this anointing of the Spirit through the indwelling work of the Spirit is ours. It belongs to everyone who has repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ by faith alone. Especially important in this regard was the anticipation of the messianic king who as God's anointed one would bring to pass the establishment of God's kingdom. This is the reason why the early church referred to Jesus himself as anointed. 
Jesus himself in the synagogue at Nazareth quotes Isaiah's prophecy, referring it to himself, and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. And we, as his people, as his ambassadors, are called upon to do the same. We are his designated witnesses for the spiritual kingdom that is offered today through the preaching of the gospel. In addition to the consecrated anointings, we also have the consecrated offerings. This is from verse 14 down through verse 30. The, the, the altar is now prepared with the anointing oil. Moses could now offer up animal sacrifices. The first was a bull for the sin offering in be, on behalf of Aaron and his sons. Look at verse 14. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Next Moses slaughtered it and took the blood with his finger, put some of it around the horns of the altar, and purified the altar. Then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. He also took all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat, and Moses offered it up in smoke on the altar. But the bull and its hide and its flesh and its refuse he burned in the fire outside the camp, just as the Lord had commanded Moses." Now, by placing their hands on the head of the animal, the priests depicted the transfer of their sin to the sacrifice. This is the picture of the substitutionary sacrifice. It is a picture of Christ who came and went to the cross in the place of sinners. Though the priests were dressed in holy garments and the high priest had received the oil of consecration, Aaron and his sons had not yet received atonement for their sin. So Moses had to make this first sacrifice in order for Aaron and his sons to be qualified then to in turn offer sacrifices for the people. The second animal sacrifice was a ram for the burnt offering. You see this in verse 18. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and sprinkled the blood on the, around on the altar. When he had cut the ram into pieces, Moses offered up the head and the pieces and the soot in smoke. After he had washed the entrails and the legs with water, Moses offered up the whole ram in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a soothing aroma. It was an offering by fire to the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So as in the former case, the priest placed their hands upon the head of the animal, and the blood of the animal was applied to the altar. But there are differences between this and the previous sacrifice. When the bull was offered, the bull's hide and entrails were taken outside the camp. There they were burned. Here, the entire 
animal is consumed there on the altar after having its legs washed. And that followed the pattern of the purpose of the burnt offering that was wholly burnt up as a sign of complete and utter dedication to the Lord. And yet, we're still not done. There's yet another sacrifice. A ram of ordination, it's called. You see that in verses 22 down through verse 30. With blood from the slaughtered beast, Moses applied some to the lobe of Aaron's right ear and the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. And then Aaron's sons received the same. He presented the second ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses slaughtered it and took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. He also had Aaron's sons come near, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of the right ear and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of their right foot, and Moses then sprinkled the rest of the blood around on the altar. And the symbolic significance of these acts pertains to the roles of the priests and the altar as the functionaries and the place of atonement, the physical extremities of the ear and the hand and the foot were smeared with blood so as to symbolize a complete cleansing. There was also the connection between the body part and the priest's distinctive role as mediator. The ear indicated that the priest was hearing confession from the people concerning their sin, and the hand was involved in the handling and the preparation of the offerings, and the foot signified the holy ground upon which they served. The central place for their activities was that brazen altar that received blood for cleansing. And then in verses 25 through 29, Aaron and his sons presented a wave offering that consisted of a combination of portions of the ram offering and the grain offering. And Moses' role was the preparation of this wave offering. He took the fat and the entrails of the right thigh of the ram. The fat of the animal offerings was devoted exclusively to the Lord, forbidden for human consumption. The objective of the prohibition was so that no person could benefit from this particular sacrifice. On top of the animal portions, he placed three grain products, a loaf of bread, a second loaf made of, with oil, and a thin wafer. All three were prepared without yeast in accordance with the typical grain offering we've already seen back in Leviticus chapter 2. Yeast was prohibited since it was symbolic of the corruption of sin Moses then placed the animal and the grain portions in the hands of Aaron and his sons who waved them as a gesture of presentation to God. And last, Moses took anointing oil and blood from the altar and sprinkled it on the priests and on their clothes. And so you have these men 
speckled with this mixture of oil and blood, a sight that signified the cleansing of the mediators. And all of this is done in public. Everyone is seeing what is happening. They now know then that these are the men who will intercede for them. These are the men who will function as their mediators. And at the completion of the ritual, Moses has now consecrated these priests, designating them as holy in the eyes of God and the people. And the people can now have confidence in what they see happening before them at the tabernacle. We who have the Lord Jesus Christ as our perfect mediator can have perfect confidence that we have total acceptance with God. That is the glory of the new covenant. That is the glory of the gospel that through Jesus Christ, none of these rituals are necessary because they all pointed to Jesus and He has fulfilled them all. Now the last phase of the ordination service was the ordination meal eaten by Aaron and his sons. You see this in verses 31 and 32. The meal consisted of cooked meat and baked goods from the ordination offerings. Cooked meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting meant that the people could witness the consumption of the meal. And later, when they are the ones bringing the sacrifices for themselves, they would know then that the sacrifice had indeed been offered when they saw the priest eating of it. Now, as I say, my ordination exam lasted about two hours. My ordination service maybe a little over an hour. This ordination service lasted seven days. The procedure that we have just recounted was repeated over and over again every day for seven days. And at the end of that seven days, in accordance with the numerical symbolism of the number seven, the ordination ritual was complete. It was imperative that the priests remain in the holy precincts during that entire week. Since the process of ordination involved only holy elements, the priests could not leave those sacred grounds without being subject to impurity. Those who lead the community of God today enjoy the blessing of ministry but also the burden of ministry. Church leaders, whether they are ordained church members, ordained clergy, as some would call us, or lay people who undertake leadership roles, everyone who leads under God is accountable to God. This is once again, what we see at the end of Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. But of course, the only perfect anointed one 
is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can perfectly mediate between man and God because he is the only perfect sacrifice. He is only able to do that act of mediation because of what he did on the cross, which is what we are going to be celebrating in a moment. Let's thank and praise God for that greatest of gifts. Father, thank you. We thank you that we have a perfect mediator. And we thank you, Father, that because you gave the gift of your Son, that we can have peace with you. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we pray that, as Paul says, partaking we would remember. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.